So as we return to our study here in the 13th chapter of the book of John, you remember that we're just a, a few hours away from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's uh, Thursday evening, and, and it's the night before the crucifixion. And the Lord is celebrating the Passover with his uh, disciples in the upper room. And the traitor, Judas Iscariot, has been banished from the room. He's been sent out to do his deed of wicked darkness and betrayal, which will set in motion a series of events that will lead Christ directly to the cross. And the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to occur again just in a few hours uh, on the Passover when the when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered, because our Lord is a is, is the true Passover lamb. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. So now, with Judas being dismissed, dismissed, the Lord is with his eleven faithful disciples. He's been freed from that evil presence of the false disciple Judas. And now our Lord has the opportunity to speak freely in what many theologians call the final discourse or the farewell discourse of our Lord Jesus before his disciples. This is his last discussion with them before his death. And therefore, those 11 that are remaining there in the room, they're true disciples, right? They're the true followers of Christ. And everything that the Lord is about to unfold to them in this final discourse, if you will, Everything in this section of Scripture from John 13 through John chapter 16, all of the instruction, all the promises, all the warnings, all of his commands is true not only for them, but by way of extension, according to John 17, 20, it's also true for us. For all who believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, all who are true followers of Christ, just as these 11 men are. So what we're going to see in the section as it starts to unfold is the characteristics of true disciples. Characteristics of true disciples, those who've been truly loved by God through Christ. Because if you might remember, the whole, the whole discourse here, the whole discussion really flows out of the top of the chapter, where John makes that statement back in the cha- top of the chapter, verse the, 1 of chapter 13, concerning the love that Christ has for his own. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, Having loved them to his own who are in the world, he loved them, I tell us, to the end. To the end. He loved them with an eternal, uh, uh, unbreakable, complete, infinite love. He loved them, and again, by way of extension, he loves us, those who are his own, out of the world, uh, uh, that God calls to himself out of the world as much as it is possible for the eternal God to love. And I think we just need to ponder that for a second. He loves us to that extent. He loves us. He loves these 11 in front of him. He loves us to the extent, all the way to the end, to the infinite, eternal, complete end, as much as is possible for the eternal love to, or the eternal God to love. That's how much he has set his love upon us. And because Christ loves his own eternally, there are going to be certain characteristics, certain manifestations uh, in the life of those who have actually been saved, of those who, who are actually loved by God in Christ. And you're going to see them here in the text. I'll tell you them now, I'll tell you them in a, in a moment, but there's three of them. Those who are eternally loved by God, who are really transformed and changed by the person of Jesus Christ, they're going to have a love for God's glory. They're going to have a love for God's glory, they're going to have a love for the children of God, and they're going to have a loyalty to the Son of God. A love for God's glory, a love for the children of God, and then a loyalty to the Son of God. Now, last time you remember that uh, although Christ has a, a, an eternal love for his own, that love is not returned by all men. Again, Judas is going to betray Christ. But the Lord knew that, right? Not, nothing catches uh, the Lord off guard. He anticipated uh, the treason of Judas. Again, look back up at verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 19, from now on I'm telling you, before it comes to pass, so that it, when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Remember I told you that word he, if you look in your text, most of your versions, it'll be italicized to say that it's not really there in the original. So it's just, again, another declaration of, uh, of deity. I'm going to tell you what happens before it comes to pass, so that when it occurs, you will believe that I am. He wants to make sure they understand who he is. Again, Jesus, because of his love for his disciples, he knows after the treachery of Judas comes... There's going to be a tendency on the part of the disciples to be uh, upset, obviously, right? There's going to be a tendency on the part of the disciples to be so upset it might undermine their faith. Therefore, he wants them to make sure that he is not some kind of a victim, that he is indeed every bit as much as who he 
who they thought he was. He is indeed the Lord of glory. Uh, Again, none of this has caught him off guard whatsoever. So he tells them at this moment what's going to happen so that after it happens, they can look back at those events that happened and say, yes, Jesus told us about that. And so they can be uh, encouraged in their faith rather than to stumble in their faith. So again, Jesus knew the treason was coming. And then he declares that fact that it's indeed going to happen. He declares it again in advance of it's happening. Verse 20. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he receives me receives him who sent me. And again, I told you basically what he's telling them there is just persevere. Uh, remember the, the charge that I've given you to go out and to the, preach the gospel. Uh, even though one of the inner circle is going to betray me in an unbelievable act of treachery, uh, nothing has changed. Uh, again, it's all part of the plan. Don't change course. Verse 21 When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now, again, in the room, that statement must have been like a bomb literally going off in the room. The, The men are utterly shocked, utterly astonished. Verse 22. The disciples then began looking at one another at a loss to know which one of them he was speaking. There was one reclining on Jesus' breast, uh, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that would be John. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who, uh, who it is of who is speaking, or whom he is speaking. He, leaning back on thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? So, uh, so again, nobody knows, because Judas is a, is a skilled hypocrite. Nobody suspected Judas. And Judas, again, he just walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for three years. He lived with him for three years, just like the other disciples. He'd seen the compassion, the mercy, the grace, the love, the kindness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ repeated over and over again. He'd seen Christ's miraculous power demonstrated again over and over again. He had just allowed Jesus to wash his feet. And again, nobody knows that he's the betrayer. Nobody except the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Verse 26, Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now again, the men still don't know who the betrayer is at this moment. Somebody in a small group the other night at our home, if you're not a part of a small group, you should be, because it always is great fellowship and a good discussion. Somebody in the small group the other night asked me, why? Why don't they still know who it is? Because the Lord has just said, it's the one from whom I dip the morsel and give it to him. Now, the answer that I gave that night during our small group was basically during the Passover meal, the host, who at this moment is being filled by the, that role being filled by Jesus, might well dip into the common bowl and pass to each member of, uh, of, uh, uh, at, at the supper, uh, again, as a mark of friendship, a mar- mark of honor. So it's possible that at a Passover meal, everybody at the table could have been at one time served by the leader at some point. And I think that's true. But upon further reflection, while that statement, again, is not incorrect, it might not be the best answer. Because although, again, the leader did serve others at the table, and that's evidenced by giving the first morsel to Judas, uh, again, everybody would have shared from that common bowl on which the morsel was dipped. In fact, Matthew, in his version of the story, uh, after the Lord reveals the fact that one of the men at the table is going to betray him, when he was asked who it was, Jesus says, Matthew 26, verse 23, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. No disrespect, but that's not exactly helpful because, again, everybody's dipping their hand in the bowl, right? Each one has dipped their hand in the bowl. So, again, at this point, the disciples still have no idea of the betrayer's identity uh, than they did before. Of course, Jesus did. And he wants to assure them that it's only one. It's only one of them who's guilty. All all the rest genuinely belong to him. Look there at verse 18. I do not speak of all of you, but I know the ones whom I've chosen. It is that scripture may be filled. He, right? One. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So again, when Jesus asks John, or Peter asks John to identify the betrayer, verse 25, leaning back just uh, thus on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, therefore... It is that one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. I think perhaps a better answer could be that Jesus probably only whispered that answer to John. Because they're in close communication, right? He he didn't declare that to the entire table. 
He didn't shout it out because, again, reading on in the text, verses 28 and 29, still everybody doesn't know who it is. Everybody doesn't know what's going on. They don't know who the betrayer is at that moment. Even, jo- even though Judas is going to get up and leave the table and be sent out, they don't know the exact reason why he has left the group and exactly why the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, didn't stand up and shout, Hey, it's Judas! It's Judas! We don't know that answer either, right? He didn't do that. D.A. Carson suggests in his commentary that perhaps the momentous nature of the, of the confession, Jesus' confidence in John, left John temporarily paralyzed, and more so uh, since Jesus himself uh, clearly took no remedial action. Jesus doesn't stop, Jesus doesn't stand up and uh, make any more uh, statement than he's already made. So when he dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Again, it's just another sign of Christ's compassion towards Judas. And again, perhaps no greater demonstration of the love that Christ has, the grace that Christ has. We sang of that this morning, the grace of God. Perhaps no greater demonstration of the love, the grace that can be found anywhere in the scripture than here this one who's about to be betrayed is offering to his betrayer, again, an opportunity for forgiveness of sin. Right? Judas, again, sitting to the left of Jesus, he's sitting in the place of highest honor at the supper. And again, by giving him that morsel first, Christ, in essence, is offering Judas forgiveness even at this late hour if he would repent, if he'd accept that offer of salvation and place his faith in Christ. So he dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And as I told you, there's nowhere anywhere, nowhere recorded anywhere in the Bible that Judas actually took the morsel and ate it. Nowhere recorded anywhere in the scripture that Judas actually took the morsel and ate it, which would have been a sign of the acceptance of the forgiveness that Christ was offering him. So again, one final time, Judas rejects Christ's compassionate offer of mercy. He rejects his love. He rejects his forgiveness of sin because Judas has hardened his heart and is already determined to give himself over to utter evil and actively pursuing the wickedness of, of, to actively participate in wickedness by betraying Christ. And again, Judas, by his own choice, Judas, by his own choice, seals his eternal doom. So again, the men still don't know what's going on. In total, verse 27, after the morsel, Satan entered into into him, and Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him, into Judas, and Jesus Jesus therefore said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And it's interesting that phrase, do quickly, really could be translated, do more quickly. Not just quickly, but do more quickly. Do more quickly than you were planning to do. In essence, it's get on with it. It is a command by Christ, the sovereign, towards the betrayer because time is short. Because, again, God has foreordained all these events and Christ must be executed at the foreordained time when all the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. Because, again, God and Jesus Christ are absolutely in control of every event. Right? Jesus Christ is in control of every event of his death. Back up in verse 2, it said the devil had already put into Judas's heart to do this thing. So again, Judas is a willing participant in this grotesque evil. He's no victim. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Again, it's a command. Judas wants this one who's sitting at his table, who's possessed by the devil, this traitor. He wants him out of the room. He wants him gone so that he can finish the Passover meal with his two disciples. And again, here at the end, John doesn't go into it, but the Lord Jesus will transform the last Passover into the first Lord's Supper. Verse 28. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said to him. Now said this to him. Again, they don't know that Jesus has sent Judas away. They don't know why he sent him away. They don't hear that private conversation. Verse 29. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have need for the feast or else uh, that he should give some money to the poor. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. So again, Judas has to leave because he's been commanded by the sovereign Lord to do so. And again, with uh, the, the, the traitor gone, the betrayer dismissed, Christ can talk to the 11 who are true disciples. Those who are left, he can talk to them freely. Because he loves them eternally. And because he loves them eternally, <clears throat> there's going to be certain characteristics that are manifest in their lives. Again, the lives of those who are loved by Christ eternally. And again, here they are uh, for a second time. It's going to be a love for God's glory. 
a love for the children of God, and then a loyalty to the Son of God, a love for the glory of God, a love for the children of God, and a love for the, or a loyalty to the Son of God himself. So that's what's going to unfold here in the text. So again, verse 31, true disciples, true Christians, true followers of Christ have an unending preoccupation and love for the glory of God because Christ has an unending preoccupation and love for the glory of God, and rightfully so. Verse 31. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Therefore, when therefore he went out, again, Judas Iscariot, all right, that's Judas Iscariot. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. <clears throat> so again, with the formal dismissal of Judas, Again, that sets off a series of events that is going to culminate in Christ's own death by way of crucifixion in just a few hours. And it's amazing, I think, when you understand that and you look here and you see Christ contemplating the coming crucifixion, his coming crucifixion, his appointment with the cross. It's amazing when you see that Jesus sees it as his glorification. He doesn't see it as martyrdom. He doesn't see it as a disgrace. The Lord Jesus sees his death upon the cross as glorification. And it's, again, completely the opposite way that men would look at the cross. Because from man's side of the cross, Jesus' crucifixion appears to be, again, from man's standpoint, to be shameful. It appears to be a disastrous defeat for the purposes of Jesus. It appears to be the lowest of humiliation. So after being falsely accused, after being falsely tried, and then scourged, which was a horrific punishment that many men died before they could even be taken out for execution, a whip was used made of a short wooden handle, and the end of that handle, they were attached several leather thongs and then tipped with either sharp pieces of metal or bone, and a man who was scourged, he was put onto a post, and his wrists were uh, over his head, his feet were dangling down to the ground, and two men from either side usually took turns lashing the back of that victim until his muscles were exposed. Veins, arteries torn open. It wasn't uncommon in this kind of a punishment for internal organs to be exposed. Uh, uh, scourging literally is a torture beyond description. Matthew reports, Matthew 27, verse 26, after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, they took the reed and began to beat him on the head, and after they'd mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to crucify him. And death by way of crucifixion, of course, was the most agonizing, horrific way that somebody could die. It was the height of humiliation, the height of shame, excruciating, right? Crucifixion, excruciating pain. The victim was stripped naked. They was nailed by his hands and feet onto a splintery cross and then hung up to suffer and die a slow death as a public spectacle. Yet what appears from mankind's perspective to be the greatest shame, the greatest disgrace, the greatest disaster the Lord Jesus Christ makes three distinct statements from the divine perspective that the cross is actually a point of glory. Jesus said first, now is the Son of Man glorified. Secondly, God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, number three, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Now, you can see the word glory or glorified appears five times in those two verses. And in the context, the word glory, doxa, is used in the sense of revelation, a revealing, uh, re- revealing the true worth and the character of both uh, God and Christ. So the cross, in essence, is putting God on display. Uh, the cross is putting Christ on display, uh, showing their intrinsic value. So in the midst of this most dreadful scene that is upcoming... The question would have to be, well, how then is Christ glorified at the cross? Well, there are a number of ways that Christ is glorified at the cross. James Boyce, as well as others, have pointed out, 
First, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central moment and the most significant point of all of human history. Now stop and think about that. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central moment and the most significant point of all of human human history. If I was to ask you what is the biggest event of human history, how many of us literally could say off the top of our mind, uh, the first thing that comes out of our mouth is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's certainly not the way the world thinks about things. The world thinks about all the greatest event in human history was the invention of this thing or that thing, or was this king rising or this king falling or, or this war or that war or whatever. The world doesn't think in biblical categories. We have to think in biblical categories. Have you noticed that things are getting a little bit um, thin? <laughs> things are a little problematic. I mean, nothing's catching God off guard. It's exactly what he said would happen. And I would encourage you as God's people, you better start thinking biblically on every single issue that you're faced with in this culture because it's going to take some divine wisdom to forge ahead what's coming our direction. And he's given us that divine wisdom in his word. He says not to be caught off guard by the evil of evil men. We should not be sitting in the corner wringing our hands like everybody else is going, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I know exactly what's going to happen. You can too. Take the book of the Revelation and read it. Jesus wins. He's coming back. Amen. The most significant event. How is Christ glorified at the cross? Because it is the issue of all issues. And the next one would be what? The resurrection. Right? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the central moment, the most significant point of all human history, including the resurrection, or we'll put that in ourselves, right? Boyce writes this, he says, Nothing that has happened in the world's history from the beginning of creation until now or ever will happen before that day when all things will be wrapped up in Christ as significant as the crucifixion. Here's the great drama which God had planned before the foundation of the world and was brought to its focal point and acted out by and all men of all races, social status, and levels of understanding have been saved by it. Did we not sing of that this morning? Did we sing of that? I think so we did, right? I think we, we read a passage that talks about that, that God has a plan, it's an eternal plan. I think we talked about that last Sunday night if you're with us. You should be. The plan is being worked out. Here it is. Christ incarnate, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. Lord Jesus Christ is the issue in this world. Again, as several writers have noted, it's at the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ performs the greatest work that ever happened in the entire human history, in the entire universe that will ever witness or be witness. Again, his, him laying down his life as a sacrifice for sinful people so that men might be reconciled unto God. The second way in which Jesus Christ is glorified at the cross is because he overturned and reversed the conduct of the first man, Adam. Jesus Christ at the cross reversed, overturned the conduct of the first man, Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6 says, For if while we were enemies at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as one through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men through sin, that would be Adam, right? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Verse 18, So then as through one man's transgression, again Adam, there resulted in condemnation to all men, Even through one act of righteousness, that would be the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, there resulted in justification of life to all men. For through one man's disobedience, again Adam, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one, that would be Jesus Christ, the many were made righteous. Jesus Christ glorified himself at the cross because he overturned and reversed the conduct of the first man, Adam. Adam was disobedient unto death, and what you see in this culture and all around the world is a result of that act of disobedience. It's men saying there is no God. I will not submit myself to God. And you're just seeing the natural consequences of rebellion, and then God, Romans chapter 1, giving them over to depraved minds, to do those things that are evil, not proper, and God taking his restraining hand off with uh, depraved minds that do not function properly, men continue to make one bad decision after another bad decision after another ridiculous decision after several more poor decisions, and you go, it just continues. It's not going to change. 
It's not going to change because they are in rebellion against God and they're under the act of condemnation of God, the judgment of God. We, we are on the preface of, of, of the act of judgment, of the judgment of God coming upon this, this country. Now, I was talking to somebody the other day about it. It's like in the Old Testament. Listen, the Babylonians are coming. Get ready. And they said, oh, no, God wouldn't do that. Hey, guess what? The Babylonians came. God will do that because God is a just God of justice, a God of righteousness, a God of holiness. And this culture is anything but those things. Judgment's coming. Judgment's here. The first part of the judgment is here. Again, Jesus Christ is glorified at the cross because he overturned and reversed the conduct of the first man, Adam. The first man, Adam, was disobedient unto death. The last man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was obedient to death. Even death on the cross. Even the horrific punishment of the death on the cross. He was obedient. Part of the plan. The only plan. Arthur Pink says this, The glory of man is to glorify God, and never was God more glorified than when his own incarnate son laid down his life in submission to his command, and never was human nature so glorified as when the Son of Man was thus glorified God. Jesus Christ is the issue. The third way that the Lord is glorified at the cross is because he paid the ransom price by his death to purchase salvation. He paid the ransom price by his death to purchase salvation because he satisfied the demands of God's justice for all who would believe. He paid the ransom price, he purchased salvation, satisfying the demands of God's justice for all who would believe upon him. Colossians 2.14, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Colossians 1, verse 19, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness uh, uh, to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ is glorified at the cross because he purchased salvation for everybody who would believe upon him because he fully satisfied the demands, all the demands of God's justice. Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to serve to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul told the elders at Ephesus as he was departing, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. First Timothy 2 and 3, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony born at the proper time. The Lord Jesus Christ, he becomes a man. And he did that for the elect of God. And as he becomes a man, he does for the elect of God what they could not do for themselves. To what Jesus Christ did, none other in all of creation, all in the realm of the created order could do. Through his suffering, his immense suffering on Calvary's cross. The thing that Jesus Christ did that no one else could do is that he stood in our place. He stood in our place. He bore our wrath against our sin. Therefore, Hebrews 2, verse 10, the writer says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, the perfecter, the author of our salvation through suffering. It's all about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who gives himself. The fourth way in which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be crucified or, or going to be glorified at the cross, the fourth way in which the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified at the cross through his death is that he destroys the power of sin and he reversed the power of Satan. He destroys the power of sin, and he reverses the power of Satan. Romans 8, 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, 
God did, sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. We can't do anything about sin. We can't do anything about the power of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ can has, and has done. He has done so. Destroyed the power of sin and reversed the power of Satan. He destroyed him who had the power of death. That would be the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The devil's a liar, always. Nothing comes out of his mouth except lies. And sin is a great enemy. Death is a great enemy. And the liar is always telling people that they don't have to fear death because it's not going to come for you. I know that it's happened for everybody else throughout the history of the world, but Maggie, you might be that one person. You may never die. It's a lie. He says there's no God. You are your own God. You can do whatever you want. Subject yourself to nobody. Submit to nobody. He says we're going to make the world a better place. It's a lie. How's it working? 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus Christ was on this planet, men have not made this place any better. Men have just continued to make it worse and worse and worse and exponentially so. All men fear death, and rightfully they should. But Jesus Christ has come. He's delivered those who through fear of death were subject to slavery, to the lies of the devil all their lives. He set the captives free. He destroyed the power of sin and reversed the power of Satan himself. One writer puts it like this. He says, In Christ's death upon Calvary's cross, Christ redeemed lost sinners, destroyed sin, defeated Satan, and he paid the price of sin God's justice demanded and purchased for himself all of the elect of God. In dying for sin, he rendered his life a sweet-smelling savior to God, a sacrifice more pure and blessed than any other ever offered. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ did all of that. He glorified himself through the cross Because he did it all what? Willingly. He was a willing sufferer. He willfully and cheerfully paid the price for man's redemption, for our redemption. John 10 and 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay down my life. I lay down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. Arthur Pink says this, he was led, not driven. He was led, not driven as a lamb to the slaughter. He endured the cross, despised its shame, and not until offended justice and broken law were fully satisfied did he cry, it is finished. Right, he's the sovereign. He could have stopped the whole process at any time he wanted, but he didn't. Led, not driven, lamb to slaughter, endured the cross, despising the shame until justice, offended, broken law were fully satisfied. Then it was over out of his love for us, his love for the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, out of the holiness, the righteousness, the glory of God in Christ. And again, he does it all willingly, cheerfully. One more, number five, Christ is glorified at the cross through his mediatorial work as he has been now highly exalted by God himself. Christ glorifies himself at the cross because now God has highly exalted him. Because he, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, now sits at the right hand of the Father. 1 Peter 3 and 22. Jesus Christ, verse 22, who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after the angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Everybody in the universe is subject to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wisdom would say you better realize that sooner than later. Because every knee will bow before the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus Christ, the one whom you delivered and delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pontius Pilate. And when he decided to release him, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted and put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, the fact to which we are witnesses. Paul, Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, 
being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, or those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? He has the name above every name. So again, in what looks like the greatest shame, the greatest disgrace, disaster, uh, on the next day as the Lord Jesus Christ is going to go to the cross. Experience again the deepest kind of indignation, humiliation, insults, mocking, all the abuse that wicked men could throw at him. All the horror, the pain, literally, of that most agonizing death. He's going to die there between two thieves. Thursday night, the Lord Jesus, looking in anticipation of what is coming in just a few hours, he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Traitor dismissed. Demon-possessed, false disciple dismissed. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Just as Isaiah foretold, which he as God's, which we as God's people are most thankful he will be pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquity. The chastening of our well-being will fall upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The second statement that the Lord makes here is the fact that not only is he glorified, but the Father is going to be glorified in him at the cross. The Father is going to be glorified in him. Again, verse 31, When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and... God is glorified in him. Now, again, the word glorified here means that God is putting himself on display. And the Lord Jesus is saying the cross displays the Father's glory to the world. John Calvin put it like this. He said, in the cross of Christ, as in splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The cross displays the incomparable goodness of God uh, before a watching world. Because it's at the cross that every aspect of the deity of God is magnified. It's through the cross, through the death of Christ on the cross, that God is glorified in him. And again, you ask the question, well, how's that? Well, first, God is glorified in Christ on Calvary's cross by putting on display God's full power. Right? God is glorified in Christ at Calvary's cross by putting on a full display of his power. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away the cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrifying them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You know what? The affairs of men, the plans of men, are not the issue. It's the plans and the affairs of God is the issue. Again, think about all the kings. Think about all the rulers. Think about all the the leaders of the world that throughout history have tried to stand against God and against Christ. Think about all those who have tried to stand against God and against Christ to wipe out Christianity and how they've all failed. Think about the enmity of the carnal mind against God. Think about the desperate wickedness of the human heart that tries to do their worst again against the, the Lord's anointed, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the fiendish malignity of, uh, of Satan who puts, into the, uh, puts himself on full display through the traitor Judas in this desperate act of wickedness as both evil men and, and Satan himself will try to stand against Christ and they've failed because Jesus or God says, for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God is in charge. God is in charge. There's no one like him. No one more powerful. No one who can stand in opposition to the one who possesses all power over sin, all power over Satan, and listen, all power over death. Again, Acts 3 and 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one, asked for a murderer to be granted, and put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we're witnesses. There is no Christianity apart from the literal historical resurrection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. One who was actually dead, who actually stayed in the tomb, and then was resurrected. We are witnesses. You put him to death. You put to death the prince of the life, the one whom God raised from the dead, the fact that we're witnesses. That's what transformed and changed their life and caused them to go out with the truth, the gospel, the good news of God's 
kindness and forgiveness of sin through Christ, that's what caused them to go out and do what? Turn the world upside down. Right? That's the truth. Acts 4.10, Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Acts 13.28, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when he carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth and believe Jesus is Lord or believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Galatians 1 and 1, Paul an apostle, not sent from men through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Colossians 2 and 12, God who raised him, raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He appeared to these last times for the sake of you through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God manifests his glory and displays his power through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he pours out his wrath upon as the sin-bearer. And God manifests his glory by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, destroying again the power of sin, the power of Satan, the power of death itself, because Jesus Christ fully fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law. And again, I spoke of death just a few moments ago because death is the great equalizer. Have you noticed that? doesn't matter, matter your social status. It doesn't matter your bank account. Death comes for all men. And no man has the power to stop death. It's only God the Father through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross that death has been dealt a final death blow, if you will, because God the Father has all power even over death. Secondly, Christ's death on the cross puts on full display the justice of God. Christ's death on the cross puts on full display the justice of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay the penalty. Somebody has to die. The violation of God's holy law has to be paid. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 11 of that chapter, as a result, the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he bears their iniquities. Somebody has to pay the violation of the law. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 7, God says, he by no means will clear the guilty. Somebody has to pay. And the Lord God took the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed substitute, and laid on him the iniquities of us all. Out of love, God the Father sent him. Out of love, the Lord Jesus Christ came. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're not doing it on our own. Again, although innocent, God laid on Christ our iniquity. He becomes the sin bearer, our sin bearer. And God the Father would not spare his own son in order that justice would be satisfied because, again, the debt of righteousness has to be paid in full. The penalty for breaking God's law must be enforced even though it meant the slaying of God's own dearly beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, verse 23, again says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. John MacArthur says this, he says, consider this. If every member of the human race were to suffer in hell forever, all their anguish, all the divine wrath poured out on them would still not be enough to atone for sin. What Christ suffered alone was sufficient to pay the price in full on behalf of everyone who will ever believe. Christ glorified God on the cross by fulfilling the requirements of divine justice, thereby 
upholding the righteousness of God no matter what the cost. The Lord Jesus Christ dies on Calvary's cross. He glorifies the Father because he puts on display the perfect justice of the perfect God. Number three, Christ's death on the cross glorifies God the Father and puts on full display God's holiness. Christ's death on the cross glorifies the Father and puts on full display God's holiness. Arthur Pink writes this. He says, He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. When Christ was made a curse for us, the thrice holy one turned away from him. It was this which caused the agonizing Savior to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never did God so manifest his hatred of sin as in the suffering and death of his only begotten. There he showed it was impossible for him to be at peace with that which had raised its defiant head against him. All honor due the holiness of God by the holy angels and cheerful obedience and patient suffering of all the holy men who have ever existed or who will ever exist are nothing in comparison with the offering of Christ himself in order that every demand of God's holiness which sin has outraged, might be fully met. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ glorifies the Father because he puts on full display God's holiness, and it's only Jesus Christ that can come and manifest that holiness and uh, rescue that holiness that has been so violated by sin. Number four, Christ's death on the cross puts on full display the faithfulness of God. Puts on full display the faithfulness of God. Again, from the moment that man rebelled against God in the garden and Adam plunged the entire race into death and corruption, God promised, right, Genesis 3.15, he would send a redeemer. Adam, or Abraham, received the covenants, the covenant blessing, the promise from God. And God promised through him there would be one who would come through his loins, who would be the blessing to the nations. And year after year in the nation of Israel, they celebrated the Passover. They celebrated the shed blood of the Lamb that brought that provision of removal of guilt, removal of wrath, the sparing of the life of the firstborn in those homes where, who were obedient to the command of God to slay the, the, the Lamb and, and to take that shed blood and apply it on the doorposts and the lintel. And all throughout the Old Testament, the priests sacrificed daily sheep and goats, knowing that the mere blood of animals could never take away the sin of mankind. All of it was pictures of God's promise to send the ultimate Redeemer, the Savior, the Lamb of God. Because again, the wages, listen, the wages of sin, it's singular, it's not plural, the wages of sin, just takes one to violate God's holiness, his righteousness, to offend his justice. His justice. The wages of sin is death, And again, God has sworn that the soul who sins must die. So God in his goodness, God in his kindness, offers the sinless one to receive the full wage of sin. Again, God makes him who knows no sin to be sin on our behalf. God our Father, the God of the universe, demonstrated his faithfulness to all of heaven and earth that he'd rather have the blood of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, spilled than one word of his should fail. He'd rather have the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, spilled rather than to have his, his, his uh, righteousness or his holiness or his justice fail and not be fully satisfied. That's how much concerned God is for his faithfulness to his word, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. And again, all through the Old Testament, it was clear that through the word of God that the Son would come, the Messiah. He would be that lamb led to slaughter. He would have his hands and feet pierced, Psalm 22, right? He'd be numbered with the transgressors. He'd be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And all of these and many other promises and predictions received their exact fulfillment at Calvary. They're all accomplished in Christ. And there supplied the greatest proof that God cannot lie, that he's absolutely gloriously faithful to all he says and all that he promises to do. And Paul declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. 
That's why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. God's passionate about his faithfulness to himself and to his word. And number five, Christ's death on the cross puts on full display the love of God. Christ's death on the cross puts on full display the love of God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, all of God's attributes are put on display. And God is glorified through Christ at the cross. God's power is on uh, omnipotence, his holiness, his wisdom, his, his omniscience, God's sovereignty, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's holiness. All those attributes tell us what God revealed about himself, what God accomplished when he offered his own dear son at the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sins upon Calvary's cross. But it's only the love of God that explains why God did all of that. Why God would do that. God so loved the world that the only way for sinners to be redeemed, the only way for the penalty of sin to be removed, and for men not to suffer eternally under divine wrath of God for the sin was for the Son to suffer and die in their place. And God is willing to do that out of love. God the Father is willing to do that out of love. God the Son is willing to do that out of love. To leave heaven come to earth, put on our flesh, to bear our iniquity, take our punishment, to be abused, treated terribly, to suffer and die the most ignominious death on the cross because he loves us. Nothing throughout all of time and eternity reveals the love of God so clearly as the cross of Calvary. Again, it's the only way. It's the only way for God and man to be reconciled through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because if there was any other way, then God would never have sent his dear son into the world to suffer and die as he did. But there is no other way. There's no other way and there's no other person. Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So God is glorified through Christ at the cross. God is glorified through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of what the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has done, I think especially to those who have never heard it before. Is that great good news of God in Christ that radiates the glory of God like I think nothing else in the universe. Therefore, that makes our public witness one of the highest and most pure forms of worship. I don't read anywhere in the Bible where it says go out and convert people. I don't read that. It just says go out and make disciples. Tell the world what I've done. Tell the world what I've done through the great love that I have for my name, for my glory, for my holiness, for my dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for men who rebelled against me. J.C. Ryle adds this. He says, of the, of the significance that the glory of the cross brings to both God the Father and God the Son. He says this, The Son shows the world by his death how holy and just the Father is the Father and how he hates sin. The Father shows the world by raising and exalting his, the Son to glory how he delights in the redemption for sinners which his Son has accomplished. Right? The Son, son shows the world by his death how holy and just the Father is how he hates sin, the Father shows the world by raising and exalting the Son to glory, how he delights in the redemption for sinners for which his Son is accomplished. God desires that men would come to repentance and come to knowledge of the truth and repentance, that none would perish. That's, that's the message of the hour. That, that's the message that has to be proclaimed to a world that is facing condemnation. Judgment is coming. You need to repent. You need to repent and place your faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ or you will bear God's wrath throughout eternity. That's the truth. And in an hour of great desperation in a culture that is actively under the judgment of God, that call to repentance to rescue is the message that we, out of love, have to give to them for their good and for the glory of the Father.
glory of the Son. Now, the mutual glorification here at the cross is essential, I think, in the relationship between the Trinity. And because there's this mutual interrelationship of love and desire to glorify, Jesus makes a third statement. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So whatever privileges, whatever blessings we receive from the work of Christ on the cross, the great significance of the cross is obviously the glory it brings to God the Father and glory it brings to God the Son. And I think verse 32 kind of looks beyond the cross. Again, it's Christ's exaltation uh, looks beyond the, the cross to the glory that Christ is going to receive in his exaltation to the Father's right hand. And when the Lord says that God the Father will glorify him immediately, I think he's speaking about the resurrection. He's speaking about the resurrection, the ascension. Again, His re- Christ returned in triumph to glory. And it's going to come very soon after the cross. And, and these are all important aspects of the glory that are, are going to be revealed through his cross. Therefore, the writer of the book of Hebrews says we should be verse 12 of or verse 2 of chapter 12, we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because, again, he, for the joy set before him, endured that cross. He embraced the cross gladly because it meant the salvation of us who have uh, repented and placed our faith in him, and it meant the glorification of his Father in his own glory. He's going to be glorified because, again, after he uh, does his work on Calvary's cross, he's going to be resurrected. And then, again, in a very short time, he's going to ascend to the Father to the glory he had before he came to this world. And he's going to minister there. And he does even at this very presence as our great high priest until he returns. And the Bible does say he's returning. Amen? The Bible says that Jesus Christ is going to return one day and all men will see him. And not just will all men see him, but all men will see him in his glory. For the rebels, it will be a day of terror. Revelation 19 pictures him coming as a conquering warrior on a white horse with his clothes, his robe dipped in blood. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat upon it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him, which no one knows himself except himself, and he is clothed with a robe, clothed with a robe dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the, right, uh, the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Which means that Christ's greatest glory is still future yet. When he comes and puts down all of his enemies, all those who stand in opposition to him. Now, for all of that to happen, in order for the Lord to be glorified, that means he's going to have to leave his disciples. And that's something they're going to find incredibly difficult. You're going to find it incredibly difficult to understand and accept. Just a few days previously, he had said to the Jews, John chapter 12, verse 35, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. The darkness may not overtake you. But now he's going to tell his disciples the truth that he has to leave them. He has to depart from them. Verse 33, little children. I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. Technion, little children, little child. It's a term of affection. And again, gently, the Lord is reminding his disciples, the disciples of the reality, telling them, I'm only going to be with you for a little while. And during their time with the Lord Jesus on, on the earth, during their discipleship time with him, as they lived together, I mean, uh, though he was going to leave, he wants them to be encouraged by the fact uh, that he's not going to leave them alone. 
Though he's going to leave, he wants them to know that, that, that he cares for them, that he still loves them. And that's going to be a repeated theme. They're not alone, and a repeated theme that he still loves them in, in the upcoming chapters as we unfold those. Little children, I'm with you a little bit longer. You shall seek me. As I say to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I'm going, you can't come, and, uh, but, but at least not yet. Right? You, you can't come yet. Now, unbelievers will never go where Jesus is. But for the believers, because of Christ's work on their behalf on the cross, one day they will be with him. One day we will be with him, reunited with him. We'll be able to see him. John, or in verse 36, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall. You shall follow me later. So again, obviously, the disciples love the Lord Jesus deeply. They depend upon him wholly. Uh, the fact that they're hearing him tell them that he's going to leave has to be troubling, painful, frightening. His upcoming death at, at this moment, they don't completely understand. It's going to happen on the next day of the cross. Certainly it's not something they would have chosen. But yet God in his wisdom and his love says, in fact, it's the most loving act that Christ could ever perform on their behalf to go to Calvary's cross. Because as the Lord reminded them earlier back in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the Lord Jesus Christ, again, he has come into the world for that express purpose, to die for them, to die for us, for all who repent and believe upon him. When therefore he had gone out, and Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little longer. You shall seek me. As I said to the Jews, now I say to you also, where I'm going, where I'm going, you cannot come. So again, the Lord is telling his disciples, because he knows these 11 left, these true disciples, uh, beneath the surface. He's telling them all of this because he knows that beneath the surface, uh, there are immediate fears and all the problems they are anticipating. He, he knows that their greatest concern for him is for his glory. So he tells them all this because he wants them to share, which at the moment they certainly are not going to see or understand, or certainly the next day unfolds, but he wants them to share in the anticipation and the excitement of his coming exaltation. Because that's what's happening. He wants them to be preoccupied with thoughts of his glory. Because, again, that's one of the discerning marks of true discipleship. A true disciple, a true follower of Christ, is one who not only loves Christ preeminently, but he's in love with the glory of God, the glory of Christ. Lord, I want to be faithful to you. Lord, I want to honor you. I want to glorify you in everything I do. Those should be the words, the first words that come out of your mouth every single morning when you wake up and know that God has given you breath again. Help me to glorify you. I close with this. Henry Martin was one of the great missionaries sent from England to India when he arrives in Calcutta, India, in 1806, he cries out, Now let me burn out for God. The writer says Martin probably didn't realize just how quick that blaze would consume him, for he died just six years later at the age of 31. But in that time, Martin devoted his life to the Lord's work. Martin compressed a lifetime of service into six years, and with incredible determination and selfish dedication, translated the New Testament and the Book of Common Prayer into Hindustani. Born in 1781 in Cornwall, England, Martin had planned to study law, but while at Cambridge, Pastor Charles Simeon of Holy Trinity Church stirred Martin's interest in the Far East with stories of William Carey's work in India. Carey, the shoe cobbler, had gone to India in 1792 and within 10 years had established a strong gospel witness in the region of Bengal. Martin was also deeply moved by reading the journals of David Brainerd, the Puritan missionary in North America, who passionately labored among the Native Americans in the cause of Christ. In 1806, Henry Martin, at the age of 25, left his family, his friends, and the woman, Lydia, whom he had won, uh, who had won his heart uh, for India. And although he loved Lydia, he was reluctant to leave the, and reluctant to leave the shores of England to, or she was reluctant to leave the shores of England to join Henry in his missionary work which was a source of great distress and discouragement to him. However, Henry did not allow his love for Lydia to keep him from his work to which God had called him. He said, I feel no wish to leave, uh, I feel no wish to live except to be employed in the work that God has given me through Christ and that work for which Christ has died. 
on the eve of his departure to England, he said, with the Bible in my hand and Christ at my right, uh, uh, strengthening me, I can do all things. He sails from England. He sheds many tears on the way, the writer says again, thinking of his loved ones whom he had left behind. Martin says in his diary, the tears and thoughts of the roaring seas, which would soon be rolling between me and all that was dear to me on earth. My feelings were of those of a man who should suddenly be told that every friend he had in the world was dead. It's only by prayer for them that I should be comforted. As I was indeed refreshed for my soul, it was refreshment for my soul, because by meeting them at the throne of grace, I seemed to be again in their society. And when he went to India, he went to the Hindu temple where he first arrived, and he saw something there that horrified him. In the Hindu temple, he saw a picture of Muhammad bowing down and worshiping Muhammad was the picture of Jesus Christ. Henry Martin wrote in his diary, This picture excited more horror in me than I can well express. I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were always to be thus dishonored. When he was asked why he felt like that, he replied, If anyone plucks out your eyes, is there no saying why is there pain? It is feeling, and because I am one with Christ, that I am thus dreadfully wounded. At his own expense, again, the author writes, he established a number of schools for the natives. He faced faced much opposition, never relented in the face of threats and persecutions. He preached the gospel to all people. He left India to go to Persia, which is modern Iran, and he believed that God had laid upon his heart to translate the New Testament and Psalms into the Persian language, which he accomplished in 11 months. At that time, nearly one quarter of the world could understand the Persian language. In a letter to Lydia, he said, Pray that utterance be made or may be given that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Martin was told he couldn't print or calculate or circulate the New Testaments until he received the Shah's permission. Therefore, he traveled 600, 600 miles to Tehran uh, over treacherous terrain and bandit-infested areas. When he arrived, he was denied permission to see the Shah. He turned around and made a 400-mile trip to find the British ambassador who gave him the proper letters of introduction and sent him back 400 miles to Tehran. This was 1812. And Martin made the entire trip on the back of a mule traveling at night to stay out of the 120-degree-plus sun of the day. On one occasion, during this time, he was surrounded by a group of very fanatical Muslim clerics who were trying to convert him to Islam. In their vehement discussion with him, they blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ, and Henry Martin began to weep. This was a source of wonder to the Muslim fanatics. They asked him why he was weeping, for they had not personally injured him. He replied, you have just blasphemed the name of my wonderful friend and Savior, Jesus Christ. This had a profound effect on those fundamentalist Muslims. It was the power of gentleness in Henry Martin that seemed to have such great power in his ministry to the Muslim people in Persia. When he finally arrived back in Tehran, he was received by the Shah and secured permission to the scriptures be printed and circulated in Persia. He died 10 days later. Martin died on October 16, 1812, at the age of 31, a man who literally burned out for God. Henry Martin, the writer says, left everything dear to him to follow Christ, to serve him, and reaching out to Christ, elect from India and Persia to come to the Savior. You know why? He was caught up with the glory of God and the glory of Christ, as all true followers of Christ should be. Amen? Amen.